And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. This is our Certainty in a World of Doubt teaching series, working our way through the Gospel of Luke. I love how we study the Bible here. I really do. Week in and week out. We're going to look at the whole chapter 17, Luke chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Verses 1 through 37. This weekend's message is titled, Mustard Seed Faith. So let me ask you this question. Do you have a said faith or a real faith? A saving faith. I oftentimes come across people who say they have faith, but as I explore a little bit further, I realize it's not really a saving faith. Do you have a said faith or a saving faith? In fact, turn to the person next to you and see if they know where the greatest chapter in the Bible for faith is found. It gives us the best definition for faith. Real quick, turn to the person next to you. What's that chapter? Anybody know? Hebrews chapter what? 11, faith chapter, gives us the best definition of faith. Grab your sermon notes, grab your sermon notes on the front of that. I I talk right off the bat right here about a saving faith. Saving faith is truth about the person and work of Christ. Oftentimes people will say, well, yeah, I believe in God, and they kind of have this general belief in God. Well, that's not saving faith. Here's what saving faith is. Saving faith is truth about the person and work of Christ entering your head. So there's content, there's, there's substance to it. There's things that you need to believe about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. You gotta comprehend that, but it can't stop there. Just because you know that information, it's gotta move from your head into your heart, igniting your heart, that's conviction. You've gotta believe it, but it can't stop there. It's gotta move from your head to your heart to your hands and outworking through, the, through your hands. That's commitment. Now, now you need to understand as it relates to faith, the definition of faith, faith is not a feeling. It's not a force. It's not a formula. There are those in American Christianity who would teach that. It's not true. It's not a formula. It's not a feeling. It's not a, a force of some kind. It's fellowship with God. It's relationship with God. I've got it right there on your notes. It is a relationship where God becomes your ultimate security. Not your bank account, not your job, not your home. He's your ultimate security. He's your ultimate significance also. Your sense of purpose and meaning in life comes from him. And he's your ultimate satisfaction in life and death. So let me say that again. It is a relationship where God becomes your ultimate security, significance, and satisfaction in life and death. Satisfaction, yeah, you find more satisfaction in him than you do in anything else. That is saving faith. That's saving faith. And so here's what's important to know as it relates to saving faith is it's not the size of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters most. So health and wealth gospel proponents would say, well, you're going through hard times because you don't have enough faith or you have sin in your life. They will, will say it's the size of your faith. Actually, it's not the size of your faith. It's actually the object of your faith that matters most because we're gonna talk about mustard seed faith here this morning. And Jesus said, if you just have faith the size of a mustard seed, anybody know the size of a mustard seed? You guys know what we're talking about here? Almost microscopic, very small. You probably wouldn't be able to see it in my hand if I had it in my hand up here. And yet you guys know how big that that can grow into when it's planted into the ground. It grows into a tree the size of about 12 to 15 feet high, tall, pretty amazing. So he's talking about a growing faith. But if you have a little bit of faith in a big God, things are gonna happen in your life. And so, so how do you grow your faith? You grow your faith by getting to know the object of your faith. Believe me, the more you get to know the object of your faith, the more your faith will grow. If you're struggling in your life right now, you you don't have trust, you're going through a hard time, get to know the object of your faith. To know him is to trust him. How many have ever met anybody that the more you got to know them, the less you trusted them? Yeah. 
Yeah, stay away from that person. You know, it's almost kind of like, oh my goodness. But listen, it's the opposite with God. The more you get to know him, the more you spend time with him, the more your faith in him, your trust in him will soar. So if your faith is a little feeble and weak this morning, hang out with us. We're going to study his word, get to know him, and your faith will grow. And so we're going to look at this idea of mustard seed faith will grow in, and we're going to look at the diagnostic, uh, the diagnosis of your spiritual health as it relates to saving faith. I think there's like six things we're going to look at through this chapter, chapter 17 this morning. But before we do that, what we're going to do is we'll read a little bit and then we'll talk about it, read, talk, read, talk, kind of work our way through this chapter. And so we'll diagnose our spiritual health here this morning and look to see to make sure that we truly have a saving faith and we're growing this mustard seed faith in our lives. And so would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. And uh, then we'll read this text and unpack these notes. So God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. And, and, and you are a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. Those who know your character, those who spend time with you, those who get to know you will trust in you. The byproduct of that is that their trust will grow in direct proportion to knowing you. For you have never forsaken those who seek you. Psalm 9, 9 and 10 makes that very clear. So we pray through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit that as we seek you, May we encounter you, may we experience you, and grow in our faith, trust, and belief in you for our joy and your glory in Jesus' beautiful and holy name. And everyone said, amen. amen. So let me begin reading chapter 17, verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come, exclamation mark. That's big. Woe to him in whom they come. In other words, he's saying, you do not want to be a means of temptation to anyone in anyone's life. He goes on and he shows you the heaviness of this. He says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So stop there just for a minute. So what he's saying is that your life should not be a stumbling block but a stepping stone to the Savior. Your life should be not, not driving wedges but building bridges. Your life should be all about reconciliation. Primarily, first and foremost, to God and then to others. That's the point that he's making because then he goes on. He says, pay attention to yourselves. Take a serious look at your lives. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Okay, stop there. Let me give you the first fill in the blank on your notes. So mustard seed faith will grow in, here's your fill in the blank, relational skills. I believe that's what he's talking about here. Relational skills. Are you growing in relational skills? What relational skills is he talking about here? Well, the way that I interact with people, I should be re interacting with them in such a way that I'm helping them to see Christ more clearly. But it doesn't mean I walk around on eggshells because he said if, you're, if your brother sins, what are you supposed to do? Rebuke him, confront him, talk to him. And, and then if he comes and repents, you do what? You forgive him. And so he's really talking about here conflict resolution and communication, how to have good, healthy relationships. I gave you some good cross-references here. Romans 12, 14 through 21. I encourage you to read this as you're kind of walking through this text on your own this next week working through the growing notes and we all desperately need good conflict resolution skills in our lives and I believe that the more you get to know Christ the more you're going to have those good conflict resolution skills you're going to have good communication you're going to have good relational skills I think that should be the mark of every believer and follower of Christ that's what he's saying here so Romans 12 14 through 21 let me just give you a couple thoughts from that that text, which is a cross-reference here. He says there, one of the th thoughts that he says, he says, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone. He also says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Don't become like the sin that has been done to you. If you've been offended, don't become like that sin, but overcome that with good is what he's saying. That, that, that should be what marks believers. Now, let me share with you one of the biggest hindrances to good, healthy relationships and, and conflict resolution skills and relational skills. One of the biggest hindrances, and I put it down in your notes, Hebrews 12, 15. This is what he says. He says, don't miss the grace of God and then al allow a bitter root to grow in your heart causing trouble within your own life and defiling many. What is he talking about there? Bitterness, bitterness in our heart. Why would I have bitterness in my heart? Because you take hits in life. You can't go very far in life or in relationships without taking a hit, without them offending you or hurting you. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely, that's life. But he's saying, learn how to take it to the grace of God and understand God's grace because, because in understanding God's grace, there's no sin that you have committed or sin that has been committed against you. There's no sin that you have committed or sin that has been committed against you is a match for God's healing, restoring grace. So take it to the grace of God, let him bring healing to your heart and then you'll be able to respond appropriately to the folks that have hurt you. Otherwise, if you don't work through that, a bitter root will grow up in your heart, and over time, you'll stockpile that, and it will poison your life like a cancer eating away at the inside of you. And then you're going to defile all the lives and the people around you with that bitterness. Have you guys heard of baggage, relational baggage? Yeah. We, what we do is we accumulate that. We take a hit from work. We take a hit from from where we, we grew up, we take a hit from a number of places. If we don't resolve that, over time it becomes bitterness in our heart and it poisons, poisons us, it defiles us and causes trouble in our relationships. So he's saying, if you're walking in vital union and communion with me, if you have saving faith, you're gonna have relational skills, you're gonna be able to work through that stuff. So here's how I would put it. I'd put it like this. It only takes one to forgive. It only takes one to forgive. Someone's hurt you, the Bible says that we need to forgive. But you're probably saying, hey, wait, wait. He said, if he repents. Well, actually, in the context, and in the context of the fullness of the scripture, Matthew 18, uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant just says, regardless of whether they repent or not, you forgive. God's called us to a life of, of forgiveness. So it only takes one to forgive. Otherwise, bitterness is going to grow up, defile you, cause trouble in, in the lives of people around you. So it only takes one to forgive. It takes two to reconcile. As far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone. Relationships are two-way street. You can only take care of your side of the street, but take care of your side of the street. You can't force them to come to you and reconcile with you. You can make an effort and leave it open to them, but it takes a one to forgive, two to reconcile, but it takes, and this is important, it takes a person's actions over time to reestablish trust. So if you've been hurt by someone, well, let me just say this, if you're being abused in a relationship, it's not wise for you to continue on in that relationship. You need to draw some good, healthy boundaries. And in fact, just because reconciliation doesn't mean that you're going to go back to how it was before, especially if this person is an abuser and a user. You have to draw those healthy boundaries. You reconcile, but that person has to earn trust over time based on their performance. So you've got to draw the line in the sand and say, hey, wait, 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 wait. I don't like the way you talk to me. And I don't like the way I talk to you, but I'm going to draw the line in the sand here, and we're not going to continue on this relationship until, until you can treat me with honor and respect and love and not use that vile language for me or whatever it might be. See, that's healthy. That's what it's talking about here. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So it's talking about conflict resolution. So it takes one to forgive, two to reconcile. It takes a person's actions over time uh, to establish trust. Trust can't be demanded, but only earned over time based on performance. There's so much more that I could say here, but let me just say this. Christians should be the most loving, forgiving, 
reconciling people on this planet because we are the most loved, forgiven, reconciled people on this planet because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Will you guys agree with that? Yeah, right on. And so I go into more detail in this in a series that we did uh, two years ago, a couple years ago, get the DB app, and we did a whole series on relationships. And the most popular of the six weeks on relationships, conflict resolution, and working all through all of that, dealing with people that are hard to get along with. And the, the most popular one of all those messages was the very last one, it was on forgiveness. And I walk you through the process of what forgiveness is. And so I would encourage you to take a look at that. So that's the first thing. Okay, let's continue on. Look at verses five through six. So we're working through the text. And so the disciples go, verse five, he says, the apostles, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So, so the context here, he just told them about conflict resolution. He talked about relational skills. And they're like, we can't pull that off. What'd you say? Seven times? He comes to me seven times in a day and I'm supposed to forgive them? There's no way. Like three strikes, they're out. He's going, no, 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 seven times. And actually, other places, uh, 18th chapter of Matthew says seven times 70. In other words, you're just flat out supposed to forgive. You're just you're supposed to. It doesn't mean you trust them, especially if they continue to, to be abusive. And you want to try to seek to reconcile. But ultimately, uh, you should forgive and you need to do that. So they're kind of overwhelmed by that. And they say, so increase our faith. Help us. Now, keep in mind, faith is what? Faith is not a force, a formula, a feeling. It's fellowship. It's relationship with God. Help us to have a deeper relationship with you because right now we don't think we can pull this off. And so this is what Jesus says. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, that's where we get our title, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. So what is he talking about here? That we can do magic tricks to impress crowds? Yeah, okay, watch this. You know that tree that's out there in the parking lot? Check this out. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's speaking metaphorically, and uh, he's really making sure that we understand it's not the size of our faith, it's the object, and when you put your faith in the object, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, miraculous things can happen. Miraculous things can happen in your life. Here's the next uh, fill in the blank for you. So mustard seed faith will grow in relational skills and then spiritual disciplines. Now, now stay with me for a minute. I'm gonna explain to you why I said that. This diagnose, diagnosis of your spiritual health. And so uh, let me walk you through this. So you've heard me say this before. Let me say it again. It's okay, it's okay not to be okay. And, and that's what these guys have come to the realization. They're not okay. They're going, we're supposed to do this? We're supposed to forgive? We're supposed to have these relational skills? We can't pull this off. We're not okay. It's okay not to be okay, okay? Okay. But it's not okay to stay that way. Does that make sense? So these guys know that they're not okay, but they don't want to stay that way, and so that that's, makes it, uh, that helps us to see that these guys are actually healthy, so it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. The more you realize you're not okay, the more you realize you're not okay, the more you are in touch with reality, and the more you will want to grow in faith. That's what we see with the disciples. So you're not okay without Christ. Did you know that? Now, the only reason why you wouldn't know that, so there's only two groups of people on this planet. There are those that are that are not okay and know it and running to Christ and then those who are not okay and somehow medicating it or I put this down in my notes, they're trying to dull that with amusements and distractions with the promise uh, of it kind of alleviating whatever the pain is. And, and amusements and distractions and medicating will never take care of that. There's an emptiness inside of all of us. There's a struggle inside of all of us. And oftentimes it's not revealed until, until we feel the heat, until we go through crisis. And then we go, man, I'm not okay. Yeah, you never were okay. It's just the, the crisis is just now bringing it to the surface. You just were out of touch with reality. So crisis has a way of bringing that stuff to the surface. Now, there's a couple of different ways that you can come to terms with your not being okay, is that you can either, uh, you can either feel the heat or, then, or you can just see the light. I prefer to see the light before I feel the heat, okay? How about you guys? So I want to see the light before I 
feel the heat, and so I see the light. The fact is, is the Bible says that we're not okay and we're in desperate need of a savior. And so what that does is that drives us to spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines, what are, the, what are, what are disciplines anyway? What are spiritual disciplines? Yell them out to me, what are some disciplines? Prayer, Bible study, hanging out with Christians. What are you guys doing here? Is this a spiritual discipline? Yeah, this is spiritual discipline. So spiritual disciplines are meant to increase our capacity to experience the presence of God. And as we experience his presence, as we get to know him, we grow in our faith. Yeah! I love it. So why do we do spiritual? That's what, so that's what they're asking for. Increase our faith. We need help. Yes, that's a good place to be. That's where you need to be. And uh, here's a couple verses here, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing what? The word of God. Some of you knew that, the word of God. So notice it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing, not just hearing, not just hearing. Okay, I already heard that. I've heard that before. No, no, no. <laughs> no, hearing and hearing, hearing and hearing the word of God. You need to hear it over and over and over and over again. I find it interesting, and I'll have people come to me after they've been hanging out here for about six months. It finally dawns on them after hearing messages, and I repeat a lot of things over and over again. And finally, it kind of hits them into the heart down deep in their heart, and they go, oh, I think I'm kind of getting it. I'm, I'm starting to get it. I'm, I'm kind of, wow, whoa. I've been sitting here for six months, and I'm just now finally beginning to understand it. Exactly. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. First Peter 2, 2, you can also put down 3, it's on your notes there. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Verse 3, oh, I love it. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Oh my goodness. Once you've tasted of his goodness, Spiritual disciplines, give me God's word. I want to spend time with him in prayer. I want to go to church. I want to get involved in a small group. I want more of him. That's what they're asking for. Okay, next group of verses, 7 through 11. These kind of all build it on each other. You thought those were hard? It's going to really get hard right now, okay? This next section is really hard. Look at verses 7, 7 through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also... So you also, when you have done all that you, have, that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We've only done what was our duty. Newsflash. You guys ready? He doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't owe you anything. Oh, in fact, this is what he owes you. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Yeah. So he owes you death, and yet, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And when we understand that, we become his servants. Now, the Bible, it's interesting here. The Bible has a lot to say. Being a Christian means being a lot of things. We're, we're a child of God, a friend of Christ, a member of the family of God, but we're also a servant. That's what it's talking about here. It's talking about servanthood, and this is what it means to be a servant. It means that he owns us. He owns us. He not only created us, but he purchased us with his blood. And so, he calls the shots for my life. Now, it's, it's more than a servant, but it's not less than being a servant, so we're servants, and that's what those verses are talking about here. Now, this is where it gets hard. If we're servants, then that means mustard seed faith will grow in, will grow in accepting all he sins. That's your next fill in the blank. Accepting all he sins and obeying all that he says. Accepting all that he sins and obeying all that he says. And in fact, when you begin to understand all that he's done for you, not, not only does he not owe you anything, and he's given you 
everything through this eternal life, but you feel forever indebted to him. That's the point that he's making here. You feel forever indebted to him for the fullness of life that you have have in him. So accepting all that he sins, whether you understand it or not, and obeying all that he says, whether you agree with him or not. Let me, let me just take that first phrase just for a minute, accepting all that he sins. How many have ever had something happen to you through your circumstances that even to this day your head still kind of spins around and it doesn't make any sense to you whatsoever? It makes no sense whatsoever. Something that's happened to you, show of hands, show of hands, it makes no sense to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you accept what he sends, whether you understand it or not, because why? You live by faith and not by sight. And because you trust his perfect love, infinite wisdom, and unlimited power. That's called trust. It's called saving faith. Doesn't make sense to me, but I know my life's in your hands. I accept what you sin. I'm gonna put you on display in my life, regardless of what's going down in my life. Does that make sense? Okay, that's, and, and we see that example found with Job. Job chapter one, verses 20 and 22. Remember Job? This dude was wealthy beyond, beyond anything, and there's, there's a day in his life when he loses everything, all of his wealth, but, but most severely, the tragic of this story is not that he lost all of his stuff, he lost all of his children. He had 10 children, seven sons, three daughters, gone. And so if you were watching Job, Okay, how's Job going to respond? Because the Bible says that he's, a, he's blameless. He's, he's, he loves God. God's at the center of his life. It makes that very clear at the very beginning of the book. So how's he going to respond? How's a godly man going to respond? Well, what does he do? He shaves his head. That's not a bad idea. I think everybody here should shave their head. No, but he shaves his head. He rips his clothes, he falls down on his face, and you're thinking, Job's having a nervous breakdown. No, he's grieving, and it's appropriate to grieve. He took a hit. But in the midst of that grief, he says these words, naked I came into this world, naked I'm going to exit. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What is that? You're the one that calls the shots for my life. I'm the servant. I don't understand this, but I trust you. I trust you. That's saving faith, by the way. That's what true faith really looks like. I accept all that you sinned, whether I understand or not, and I obey all, all that he says, whether I agree with him or not. Luke 6, uh, 46, Jesus uh, said to his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? He says, well, that's, he's just saying that's inconsistent. If, he, if he's Lord Jesus Christ, if he's truly your Savior, you're gonna follow him, it just makes sense. Because he's given us these directives in his word out of his wisdom and love for us. And to do otherwise is to trample on his love and wisdom. Now, let me give you something here before we move on. Um, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, also wrote this uh, hymn that says this, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Let me explain that. So our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before. Now this is how most, most people, and there's even Christians that see this, they see Christianity like this. They see this distinction between duty, moral duty, I'm either gonna live for God, or, or the other option is I'm gonna be true to myself, follow my heart, find my heart's pleasures. I'm gonna live for pleasure. So, so there are those that would make that distinction. In fact, I, I heard it growing up in the church. I grew up in the church, and I hear people say, when we try to appeal to them to come to faith in Christ, I had friends that said, no, 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 I'm gonna go out and have a little fun, and then I'll come to Christ. And I'm thinking, are you insane? Because you don't even know what it means to have fun. You don't even know where true pleasure is found. It ain't found out there. Yeah, it's temporal out there. Yeah, you can find pleasure out there. I understand that. But nothing like the pleasure you can find in knowing Christ. See, that's what he's saying here. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. So the, so the options, oftentimes, people think that they have are turn from God, turn from moral duty, and pursue the desires of your heart, your pleasures, or repress your desires and do your moral duty. But the costly and sacrificial love of Christ on the cross 
changes that. <laughs> it, it totally changes that. When you see the beauty of what he has done for us, it attracts our hearts to him. We realize that the love and the hope and the meaning and the consolation that we have been seeking in other things are in him. They're in him. If the Lord of the universe loves us enough to experience the cross for us, what are we afraid of? We don't need to be afraid of anything. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. So, so, accepting all that he sins, whether you understand it or not, and obeying all that he says, whether you agree with him or not, that's where you're gonna find the greatest pleasure in life. It's knowing him, and that's the truth. And I've been doing this for a long time, and I've seen it in my own life, and I've seen it in a whole lot of other lives. Okay, let's continue reading, because this, the next part tells us how we do that, how we keep Christ at the center of our life. Look at verses nine, uh, 11 through 19. This is Jesus cleanses the 10 lepers. How many are familiar with this story? Yep, it's a great story, because it's gonna help us to, to find that sweet spot of, of union and communion with Christ. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. You guys know why they were standing at a distance? They were outcast. They were society outcast. They were, many people believe that they were cursed by God, and therefore they were cursed by that culture. Uh, their disease was terminal. Nobody wanted to get close to them. They weren't allowed to get close to anybody. So very much alienated from folks, so they stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Oh my goodness, miraculous. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleansed? Rhetorical question. We're not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. That's powerful. Okay, here's the point. Here's your fill in the blank. Um, actually blanks, there's three of them there. Mustard seed faith will grow in wonder, love, and praise of God. Wonder, love, and praise of God. So mustard seed faith, if you've got saving faith, and if it's growing, it's gonna grow in wonder, love, and praise of God. Now, you guys are familiar with this. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. How many are familiar with that verse? It's found in James 1:17. Yep, every good and perfect gift comes from God. I think our lives are filled up with a lot of good gifts, but I believe the perfect gift he's talking about is Jesus. I believe it's, it's Jesus. So here's, here's my understanding of this story. All 10 lepers experienced God's common grace. They experienced the good gift of temporal healing because eventually they're gonna die. So they received this, this common grace, good gift of temporal healing. Only one experienced his saving grace, the perfect gift, the Lord Jesus Christ, eternal healing. You guys tracking with me? Okay. Here's, here's what I believe we can learn from this story, is that the deepest and most enduring pleasure is not from God, but in God. All of the good gifts, every good gift from God is meant to lead our ultimate affections and adoration to the perfect gift, Christ Jesus, which makes the good gifts more pleasurable. Nine of them missed it. And we oftentimes miss it because of the twin errors of ingratitude and idolatry. They had ingratitude. They didn't, they were just, they just went from there. Wow. They didn't come back to thank him. And also idolatry. Idolatry is, is wanting the healing more than you want the healer. That's idolatry. It's loving anything more than you love God. Ingratitude is just, it's like you're not actually 
thinking about where you got what you got, the, the good gift. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And so every good gift that you have is, is a gift from God and a pointer back to God. The perfect gift to know him, to experience him. Um, when, when the cat is away, the mice or the mouse, this mouse, will play. My wife uh, is off for this weekend. She took off, and um, I have been partying like you wouldn't believe. I, just, I went out on the town the other night and just, just got crazy. And I just want to confess that just before you guys. I just got really wild and crazy. Went out with a, with a friend of mine, a guy, uh, and uh, we, went, uh, we went to AJ's and had a salad. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then we broke down and we, we bought a $12 piece of carrot cake. What? Yeah, $12, yeah, that's right. We split it right down the middle and, and they didn't spare any ingredients whatsoever. That was so good. We were lost in wonder, love, and praise <laughs> of God, of God. Do you guys believe that you can eat carrot cake to the glory of God? Do, would you say that carrot cake is really a, a, you know, a gift from God, a great gift from God? And do you think that that can be a channel of adoration back to God while you're eating it? Now, if you eat too much of it, probably no longer a channel of adoration, okay? <laughs> That's when it gets bad. But man, we, we were eating that and we were just thinking about how good God is. And it also occurred to me while, while we were eating that, while I was eating that, I was just thinking, if this cake is this good, I know, I know that I've tasted of God and he's even better. So, so think of all the good gifts. Think of the good gifts this morning. Did you have breakfast this morning? That's a gift from God. I had oatmeal, raisins, nuts, Chased it with some toast. Chased that with some toast and then a little bit of coffee. I'm working on a mocha right here. I've got about halfway down. Those are great gifts. But they're not meant to terminate on the gift, but to be a channel of adoration to the perfect gift. That's the point of this story with the, with the ten lepers. Nine of them missed it. They missed the best gift of all, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ, saving faith. So we need to learn how to live our lives in such a way that we're lost regularly in wonder, love, and praise of God. So my wife, we had, the, we had six of our grandkids hanging out with us at the beginning of this week. And uh, they totally trashed our place, okay? And my wife just picks up and leaves for the weekend. I'm stuck with a messed up house. And she went to a conference and uh, she went to a conference. She won't be back for like three months or something. That's what she told me. It's like, what's up with that? I've never gone to a conference for three months. But, uh, and she didn't uh, leave any kind of address or anything either. I don't even know where she is. Now, she'll be back today. But so I was busy cleaning house and studying and worshiping and had some songs on. I was thinking of that song. All the, the songs that we sang this morning were absolutely Beautiful, but the one in particular that I loved is how deep the Father love for us, how deep the Father's love for us, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measures. Oh my goodness. I don't know how you could not be lost in wonder, love, and praise. If you understand those words of that song or the words of any of these songs, if you understand this text, I'm telling you, there's just something, when you understand who it is that loves you and cares for you, and you, and you don't have just a, a said faith going through the motions. You have a real faith. You're interacting with the king of the universe. You can know him. You can experience him. See, that's, that's saving faith. Lost in wonder, love, and praise. I, I, I can do that for hours. It's just, it sounds crazy, but it's just like, oh, my goodness. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Let's continue on. With, I, I'd like to camp out there, but, but it, it does get better because as you work through this, as, as you, it, when you are lost in wonder, love, and praise, you're gonna experience this next. Look at verses 20 and 21. Let me read that to you. Verses 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, 
He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be, absor- to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's talking about the first coming, and he's talking about him. He's, talking, he's, he's here, and uh, he's talking about first coming, so let me, let me help you. Let me give you the fill in the blanks, and I'll talk to you about it. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness, peace, and joy. So John chapter three, Jesus has this encounter with Nicodemus, religious leader, and he tells this guy, he levels with him, very religious, doesn't have a relationship with God, very moral guy, and he tells Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God, you can't even enter the kingdom of God unless you are what, anybody? Born again. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Your heart has to be made alive. Your spirit has to be made alive. And when you do, you can begin to see what others can't see and begin to experience what others can't experience. That's what he's talking about. It's spectacular. The Christian life is amazing. That's why he's talking about there. And and then in Romans 14, 17, this is what we experience. So wonder, love, and praise is gonna produce in us righteousness, peace, and joy. For the kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, not a list of rules, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy. Not that we don't have rules, but this is what it's first and foremost, and then we obey him out of that. Wonder, love, and praise, righteousness, peace, and joy. See, they were looking for a physical, political kingdom. This was the rule of God in men's hearts through faith in the Savior. It was a spiritual kingdom in his first coming he came to establish. And that's what he's talking about there in verses 20 and 21. Let's look look at this. Righteousness, yeah, righteousness is peace with God through Christ Jesus. It's not based on my performance. It's based on the performance of what Christ has done. So right now, if you have put your faith in Christ, you stand before God perfectly righteous. You're perfect before him. Nothing keeps you from intimacy with him except for you, except idolatry in you because you love something more than you love him. But nothing holds you back from that because he's taken care of that for you. So that's righteousness, right standing with him. And of course, that's gonna produce, so if I have peace with God, I'm gonna have the peace of God ruling my heart regardless of what's going down in my life. Regardless of what's happening in my life, I can have the peace of God. Peace is assurance of God's loving, wise control in my life and over my life. That Yeah, my life looks really chaotic right now and it doesn't make much sense. And yet, I know in his perfect love, infinite wisdom, unlimited power, he's going to take care of me. He's got me covered. He loves me. See, that's trust. And then I'm going to have joy. Joy is, is buoyancy. Buoyancy. Life can push you down. It can't keep you down. It's buoyancy that comes from the pleasures you find and the eternal privileges you have in God regardless of your circumstances. It's just enjoying the wealth of his presence, the comfort of his love, the, the strength of his power, the significance of being called his child. It makes a difference. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Wonder, love, and praise producing righteousness, peace, and joy. And then here's the last part. He talks about his second coming. Here we go. We're almost finished. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. I mean, that's how I feel right now. I'm just longing for his second coming. I'm longing, Jesus, we need you. Maranatha, please come back. And that's what he's saying. And then verse 23, and they will say to you, look, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. They're gonna say, oh, he's already come back. There's actually uh, religious systems out there that say he's already come back. That's crazy. That's absolutely. I'm not, I wasn't pointing, my, my buddy here was telling me that he was, he's having a Bible study with some guys. One guy said to him that, oh, he's already come back. Jesus already come back. I go, he's already come back? This place is a mess. That doesn't make sense. That's what, that's what he was saying. I just, it came, came to mind as I was saying about that. I was like, yeah, I don't think so. And there's people that would say that. Do not go out and follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So he's talking second coming here. And what he's saying here, and I think part of the, the major point here, is that his return will be sudden, personal, visible, and glorious, like, like lightning striking. Everybody's going to see it. You'll know when he's back. When he comes back, you're going to know it. And that's the point that he's making here. But notice also here he says, verse 25, uh, no, verse 24, no, verse 25, I'm sorry. (laughs) 
Here we go. We'll finish. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So he's going back to his first coming. He must first do this. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. So he's given us these pictures from the Old Testament. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. What's he talking about here? Here's, here's I think, the, the big idea, is that people were so absorbed in the things of this life that they were totally oblivious to God, his kingdom, and the final judgment. And it caught them off guard, and they were destroyed. It's, uh, where did I finish off? 30. So, so will it be, so verse 31, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. What is he talking about here? Don't, don't cling, don't cling to these worldly pleasures. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. The good gifts are meant to point you to the ultimate gift. So cling to him, not to those good gifts. Be willing to let those things go because remember Lot's wife, verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. What did she do? Her heart was in Sodom. She was on the brink of salvation and she looked back and became a pillar of salt. She was frozen it's, it's an interesting analogy how our hearts can be so attached to the material, to the physical, to the temporal. And he's saying, don't cling to this stuff. Let this stuff, these gifts, point to the ultimate gift and cling to him. Know him. So I tell you, um, verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. He's just saying, don't live for your own glory, live for God's glory. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. It was interesting. I studied this, verses 35 and, uh, 34 and 35. One will be taken away to judgment is the picture. It's very similar to that what was said in uh, the day of Noah when those that were taken away by the flood of judgment. That's the idea here. One will be taken away to judgment, the other left to enter God's kingdom. That's what he's talking about here. Here's the last point on your notes. So, so mustard seed faith will grow in longing to see and be with Jesus forever. And there's, a, there's tons more that we could talk about here. So the day of judgment is one in which believers are rewarded and unbelievers are punished. So our beliefs determine our eternal destination, heaven or hell, and our behavior determines our eternal compensation, whether it be reward or punishment. And this, this should produce within us, if we, if we are awaiting, if we long for his coming, which is normal and healthy Christianity, this will produce in us a spiritual alertness, a, a mission urgency, because we're running out of time. I don't know if you've looked around lately, but there's a lot of bad stuff coming down on this planet? And is it increasing in intensity and in severity? Yeah, yeah, what does the Bible say? As the end comes closer, it will. In fact, what's interesting, the Greek word for crisis means judgment. So when you see these things happening in frequency and intensity, these are birth pains according to Matthew 24 and Mark 13. It's to alert us, these judgments are to alert us to the final judgment so that we don't have to face the final judgment if we've put our faith in Christ. And, and so, so this will produce in us spiritual alertness, mission urgency, power to forgive. Why power to forgive? Why does this help us to forgive folks? Because we know that final judgment is coming, that one of these days the Lord Jesus Christ will balance the books, settle the score, make things right. 
And so we actually pity those who have not repented because we know, we know where they're headed and we know what they're going to experience in his final judgment. Nobody gets away with anything. And so that's why we're able to forgive. We turn them over to God and God deals with them. And that's part of it. It helps us with our forgiveness. Uh, it gives us power to forgive, but also hope and suffering. Look at your last statement on your notes. If there is no final judgment, what hope do we have for this sinful world? However, if there is a final judgment, what hope do I have for my sinfulness? Jesus' first coming was to bear our judgment, but if I reject him, I will face his judgment in his second coming. John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Come to Jesus. Give your life to him. Oh my goodness. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Give your life to him. If you give your life to him, we'd love to put you under the water this afternoon, okay? We would like to baptize you. We've got a baptism, a time of baptism this afternoon. So, so commit your life to Christ. Next weekend, we're going to talk about don't lose heart. Have you felt like giving up lately? Anybody? Yeah, we all go through that. Come back next week. We're going to talk about it. How not to lose heart. How not to lose heart. I would encourage you to read the whole next chapter, chapter 18, because it gives us some really good insight on that topic. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for the gospel, the good news that we have been reconciled to you but you have sent your son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have everlasting life. Thank you, thank you for that. So by grace through faith in your son Jesus, we enter into a relationship where you become our ultimate security, significance, and satisfaction in life and death. We pray through this saving faith, may we grow in relational skills in spiritual disciplines, in accepting all that you send and obeying all that you say, lost in wonder, love, and praise of you as we experience righteousness, peace, and joy from you, longing for your soon return to be with you for all eternity. We pray these things in your son's glorious name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. God bless you.